Uh, you don't have to say it out loud, but is there a particular sin that you regularly succumb to? Bob Newhart has a sketch where he's a therapist. Perhaps you've seen it. A lady comes to him who is fearful of being buried alive in a box. Well, before the session officially begins, uh, Bob Newhart, he goes over his billing process. He says, each session is only $5. Each session is only five minutes long. And oh, by the way, he says, I don't make change. The lady is pleased to hear this. So at Newhart's prompting, she then begins to share with him her fear of being buried alive and how that fear is ruining her life. She can't go under tunnels. She can't get in an elevator. She can't even live in her home. Anything boxy absolutely frightens her. Well, after carefully listening to her, Newhart then says to her, all right, I'm going to say to you two words. And I want you to listen to these words very carefully. And I want you to take these two with you out of this office. And I want you to incorporate these two words into your life. The woman, she, she gets out a pen and paper and she leans really closely. She's about to, to say the words. And do you remember what he says? He, he actually yells it at her. He says, stop it. <laughs> In fact, he says it several times. He's like, stop it, stop it, stop it, stop it. And the woman, she's kind of taken back. After a really long pause, she then leans forward and she says, so are you telling me I should just stop it? <laughs> to which Newhart replies, yes. And there you go. Have you seen that sketch before? Newhart is great, isn't he? But man, if only change were that simple. Could you imagine how much easier parenting would be? Could you imagine how much easier the Christian life would be if all we had to say to ourselves is just stop it? However, my experience personally, and as a pastor and as a parent, is that simply telling someone stop it is not enough to bring about change. I mean, just for a moment, think about your own life. Let me go back to the question we started with just a moment ago. Is there a particular sin that you regularly give into or succumb to? Maybe anger or pride? Perhaps a sexual sin? Maybe worrying or lying? Maybe bitterness? My guess is you know that it's wrong. The problem isn't a lack of knowledge. So why don't you just stop it? Christian, why don't you just stop lying? Why don't you just stop giving into sexual sin? Why don't you just stop worrying? Why don't you just stop being bitter at your spouse or your kids? Let me ask you this way. As Christians, why do we often choose to live for ourselves rather than for Christ? I mean, all those sins I just mentioned, at the end of the day, underneath it all, those are simply expressions of living for myself rather than Christ. 
Yet the Bible is very clear. Those who have been redeemed, those who have been saved by the Lord Jesus Christ, we are called to, we are bound by what the Scripture says, and Scripture calls us to live for Jesus in each and every moment of the day. But here's the question I want us to consider this, this morning, that is this. Why don't we do that? Why is that often not the case that we live for Christ? Why is it that we often choose to live for ourselves? And again, one more question, why is simply telling ourselves, stop it, not enough. Well, I believe our passage this morning helps answer that question. Turn with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. Several months ago, artist Ed Sheeran released a new song called Visiting Hours. Perhaps you've heard it. It's quite a moving song. Ed Sheeran, he wrote the song as a tribute to a mentor of his who recently died. And the song, when you listen to it, it employs every technique to move the listener's emotions. And I have the lyrics here up on the screen. Listen to what he writes. He says, I wish that heaven had visiting hours so I could just swing by and ask your advice. What would you do in my situation? I haven't a clue how I'd even raise them. What would you do because you always do what's right. You, you understand the sentiment of the song, don't you? Ed wishes that heaven had visiting hours so he could receive the counsel he needs, right? Well, friend, in our text this morning, we get exactly that. You see, in Revelation 4, we are able to accompany the Apostle John as he's given entrance into heaven. And as we accompany John, we discover the answer to the question as to why we often choose to live for ourselves rather than Christ. And while simply saying stop it is not enough to change. So go ahead and, and look there with me in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 4. As you're looking there, I, I need to remind you, I must remind you that the book of Revelation is not a puzzle book. It's a picture book. And you know the difference, right? Right? A puzzle book is meant to confuse you. A picture book, on the other hand, is meant to grab your ima imagination, and that's what the book of Revelation is. This book was not written to confuse or perplex us, but to capture our imaginations in order to strengthen our faith. Indeed, the Revelation, it's, it's a vision. The book of Revelation, you'll know it begins with these words, the revelation of Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ in this book is both the one revealed and the revealer. And over 52 times in this book, John says, and I saw, and I saw, and I saw. So let's see what John saw in heaven. Follow along with me as I read Revelation chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. You read this. John writes, After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now notice, 
how often John uses the phrase, had the appearance of. John does not say God is, but rather God had the appearance of. The God John sees on the throne is so glorious, is so magnificent, that he can't be described in human terms. The best John can do is talk about precious stones, their radiance and beauty, to describe what appears to be, as best as he can, the awesomeness of God. But notice what else we learn about God. Notice he's also absolute in power. Look at verses 4 and following. And around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there were, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like that of a lion. The second living creature like an ox. The third living creature with the face of a man. And the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. Now, how many of you uh, remember the old TV show, Get Smart? Remember how each episode began and ended? It was that scene of Maxwell Smart walking through door after door after door after door. Remember this? The point being, there wasn't easy access to the room he was going to. Notice how cluttered it is around God's throne. There's no easy access to him, is there? For notice, what surrounds the throne? What shrouds the throne are magnificent beings. First, notice you have 24 elders. Now, I understand these to be high-ranking angels. Why do I think that? I think because, as the rest of the book of Revelation makes clear, it distinguishes these elders from the redeemed people of God. But notice, that's not all who's around the throne. There's also four living creatures. These are majestic beings who, please hear me, they lead in worship and initiate God's judgment. And what I want you to see, what is often overlooked, is that those who occupy space around God's throne are glorious and magnificent in their own right. They're awesome. I mean, just look at their descriptions. This is to say the 24 elders and the four living creatures, please hear me, they are creatures and beings of authority. They're greater than any human being. In the past, they've silenced kings and shut the mouths of lions. They're the ones who carry out God's will. And these high creatures of authority worship God day and night. And you know what the point is? The point is this. If the throne of God is surrounded by such magnificent creatures of authority, then what must God be like? And you know what the answer is? Absolute authority. Now, that's what John sees. But notice what John hears. What does verse 5 state? 
flashes of lightnings and peals and rumbles of what? Say it. Thunder. You have to understand, in the age before nuclear weapons, the most perfect demonstration of power, I mean frightening power, were the forces of nature unleashed. And that's what we see here. The point is, God is absolute in power and authority. Unless we have any doubt about this, notice what we see these 24 elders and four living creatures doing. Look at verse 9. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night, they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne, saying, Worthy are you our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. You know, some Christians sigh at the idea of worshiping God in heaven. Like it's going to be a big snooze fest. Friend, I tell you, it is not going to be drudgery. You are not going to be bored worshiping God in heaven. I promise you that. And you know why? Because you're going to be so captivated. You're going to be so taken back by the majesty and glory of our triune God that you won't want to do anything else but worship him, listen to me, for your joy. Think about it. Whenever you hear or taste or see something that is majestic or awesome or enjoyable, right? Your satisfaction of that thing is incomplete without praise. Like, when you're taken by, back by some great-tasting food, what do you do? You're not silent. You say, oh, this is so good. You praise to complete your joy. Your joy is incomplete without that praise. Friend, so it will be with God in heaven, but like a bazillion times more. You'll be so captured by his brilliant glory, you will want to praise him for your satisfaction and for your joy. Yet in many ways, as awesome as Revelation 4 is, one of its chief functions is simply to set the stage for what takes place here in chapter 5. For in chapter 5, we see a drama. Indeed, here in the throne room of God, the most important drama of all time takes place. And it's one that corrects, connects directly to our lives. Look at chapter 5, verse 1. Then I saw on the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. In a Charles Dickens novel, A Christmas Carol, the first ghost, the ghost of Christmas past, takes Scrooge on a journey to see his childhood. Remember this? However, at first, Scrooge doesn't know where he's going. But when he finally arrives at his childhood home, Scrooge begins to recognize some things, and then it dawns on him. 
he realizes he's not watching someone else's life. No, he's watching an event that will directly impact his life. That's what's happening to John in these verses. And friend, that's what's happening to us as well. Because what you have to understand is your future, your life, is directly impacted by the scroll that John sees in the right hand of Almighty God. And what is this scroll? Well, notice the fact that it's written on the inside and back indicates that it's a legal document. And as the the rest of the book of Revelation reveals... This scroll represents the fullness of God's purposes for blessing and judgment. So what I want you to know is this. There is no more important scroll imaginable. In this scroll is found God's plan to overthrow sin, evil, and death. It's God's plan to bring about salvation, glorification, the new heavens, the new earth. All of God's purposes for all of history, yours included, are contained in this scroll. And then notice, in order for all these things to be enacted, the seals on the scroll must be broken. Unless they're broken, God's plans will not come to pass. So thus a challenge, a call is issued. Look in verse 2. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break it seals. Now just consider for a moment what this angel is saying. This angel is asking for someone to make their way through the 24 elders, past the four living creatures, past the sea of glass. He's asking for someone to come all the way up to the throne of Almighty God, go up to the throne, and then reach and take out of the hand of Almighty God, this scroll, to take it and then to bust open those seals. There's not a more huge or impossible quest, request could be made. You will not find a larger, more significant request than this. And notice what the angel finds. Look at verses 3 and 4. And no one in heaven, on earth or under the earth, was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. Just picture the scene with me. There's a mighty angel And his voice fills the heavens and the earth with a mighty proclamation. Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? I imagine it's a proclamation so loud you could feel the bass of the angel's voice resonate in your body. Yet this booming proclamation is followed by a deafening silence. Why? Because no one is worthy. No one was found worthy to open the scroll in heaven, on earth, and under the earth. 
Now, wait a moment. No one was found worthy on earth? I mean, there have been some pretty incredible people to trod this earth, have there not? I mean, uh, what about King David? What about the prophet Daniel? Or, or what about Elijah or Elisha? I mean, surely, surely one of them is worthy to open the scroll, right? Or, or what about one of the apostles? What about the Apostle Paul? Or, or what about those people the author of Hebrews mentions in Hebrews eleven thirty eight? People of whom the text says, the text says this, there are people who this, worth, this earth was not worthy. Surely, surely one of them would be able to take the scroll and to open it up. No. No one on earth was found worthy. Okay, okay, that's fine. What about in heaven? I mean, already in chapter 4, we've seen some pretty incredible creatures, haven't we? What about one of the 24 elders? I mean, they are sitting, they're sitting on their own thrones and have their own crowns for crying out loud. Surely one of them can go up there and open the scroll. Or what about one of the four living creatures? These majestic, authority, incredible, surely one of them can open the scroll. No. No one in heaven was found worthy to open the scroll. No one in heaven, on earth, or under the earth. So John weeps. The silence in heaven is broken by the sound of John weeping. And notice what it says in verse 4. He wept loudly. And friend, so should we. Stefan Thomas is a German-born programmer living in San Francisco, and he has a Bitcoin account worth $220 million. But get this, he can't remember his password. You see, Thomas lost the paper where he wrote down the password for his iron key, which gives users 10 guesses before it seizes it up and encrypts the contents forever. Thomas has already tried eight of his most commonly used formulations, but to no avail. As of today, he only has two guesses left. So get this. Because Thomas can't remember the correct password, he is denied access to a fortune of over $220 million. Can you imagine? Friend, opening this scroll is so much more important than that account. Why? Because if this scroll isn't opened, God's plan for redemption and judgment will not come to pass. Sin and death will not be defeated. Evil will not be defeated. There will be no resurrected body. There will be no new heavens and new earth. So John weeps loudly. Friend, and we are not mere spectators here. Unless the seals are broken, God's plan for all of humanity, including you, will not take place. But now notice what we see in verse 5. John is weeping loudly, and then verse 5, And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. 
Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God, sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne. Praise God. There is one who is worthy to take the scroll, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen? He alone is able to take the scroll and fulfill all of God's plans for salvation and judgment. Yet notice, please notice, John is told that the lion from the tribe of Judah has overcome. Yet when John actually turns and looks to see the conqueror, what does he see? He does not see a mighty lion, but rather what? A lamb as if in, if in slain. Why is Jesus the only one who can come into the presence of a holy God and open the scroll? Why is he worthy? Because he's overcome. And how did the lamb of the tribe of Judah overcome? By dying on the cross to purchase for God with his blood people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. And friend, please hear me. This is the good news of Scripture. The good news of the Bible is that Christ died to save sinners. This lion, this lamb that we see here, he lived the perfect life we failed to live, and he died the death we are owed because of our sin. Then three days later, he rose from the dead. Jesus overcame sin and death. This is why John describes Jesus as a lamb as though it had been slain to signify that he had been slain, but now has come back to life. And friend, please hear me. You cannot save yourself. Your sin is too great, and your righteousness is way too weak. For you to gain entrance for all eternity with God in heaven... You not only need your sins forgiven, but you need a righteousness that you do not possess, but that has been given to you and offered to you freely in the Lord Jesus Christ. Friend, have you put your faith in Christ alone to save you? Because look, you can either go to hell clinging to your own righteousness, or you can go to heaven with the righteousness of Christ credited to you by faith alone. Jesus alone is worthy to bring about all God's saving purposes and plans. In fact, notice the response in heaven. Verse 9, And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. For you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tongue, tribe, and nation, people and nation. And you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. 
Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders with the voice of many angels, numbered myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, notice how often the word worthy is used. Worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. And we say what? Amen and amen. Last October, I took my family to see the Henry Ford Museum up in Dearborn, Michigan. And one of the exhibits had this picture. You know what these women are doing? Oh, I'd rather, you know who these women are. They're aspiring stewardesses. And you know what they're doing? They're making a vow that they will never get married. That's right. In the early days of air travel, there were certain requirements and expectations of women who wanted to be stewardesses. You know what those requirements were? I'll tell you. The women had to be under 25 years old. They had to weigh less than 115 pounds. They couldn't be taller than 5'4", and yes, they had to be single. And not just single, but as this picture portrays, they had to promise not to get married. And you know why these women pledged never to marry? Because they believed their job was worthy of such a sacrifice and commitment. Tell me, in response to Jesus taking the scroll, what do we see everyone in heaven doing? They're worshiping Christ. And what are they saying? They're saying the same thing over and over again. Worthy is the Lamb. And Valley Center Community Church, what I want you to see is that these two chapters are saying to us something in big, bright, neon letters. And you know what they're saying to us? They're saying this very important and life-transforming truth, and that is this, and that is Jesus alone is worthy of your full devotion. Far greater than a job at an airline, Jesus Christ is worthy alone, alone is worthy of your full devotion. Notice what the inhabitants of heaven repeatedly declare throughout chapter 5. They proclaim that Christ alone is worthy to receive honor and praise. And friend, that includes honor and praise from you. Jesus is worthy to receive honor from you, which means you live for him. So let's go back to that original question. Why is it that we so often choose to live for ourselves rather than Christ? And you know what the answer is? Because we don't think Christ is worthy of it. Friend, the reason why you live for yourself in your marriage, at school, at work, the reason why you lie, you give way to worry, sexual sin, whatever that besetting sin is, is because underneath it all, you believe, and I include myself in this, you believe that living for yourself, 
your wants, your wishes, your desires is more worthy of your allegiance than Jesus Christ. Yet notice the text we just worked through the last 25 minutes is going out of its way to prove to us that Christ and Christ alone is worthy of our full devotion in worship. And friend, that is to be the chief motivation why we live for him. We live for him because he's worthy of it. And I cannot overstate how important it is that we embrace this truth. You know, so often you'll hear that the solution to overcoming that besetting sin you have is just to bask in how much God loves you. However, I want to suggest that such counsel is insufficient. Indeed, at times, it might even be unhelpful. Let me explain to you why. Take really careful note. What do we see the residents of heaven doing? As a good friend of mine said, there are no selfies in heaven. You know what a selfie is, right? There's something glorious behind you, but you put yourself as the focal point and take the picture. There are no selfies in heaven. This is to say we don't see the residents of heaven say, look, look at how much God loves me. You know, you know what they're doing? They're falling on their faces in majestic awe of their God. They're captivated by his glory and excellence so much so they're forgetting about themselves. And if the residents of heaven are being satisfied in the worth of God, how much more should that be our chief motivation here and now? And I have to confess to you that passages like this and other large swaths of the New Testament have really refined my thinking. When counseling one another, when counseling ourselves, the question we should ask is not, where do I find my value, significance, and worth? In other words, where do I derive my identity? And the reason why that's not the best question I want to argue is because the answer terminates in self. Right? Do I feel good about myself because of my job or because God loves me? Do I feel good about myself because I'm in a romantic relationship or because God loves me? Notice, where's the focus in each question? Me. This is still a covert way of being self-absorbed. I either feel good about myself because my job makes me feel good or God makes me feel good, but either way, I'm still focused on me. Now, please hear me. I don't want Dave having to put out fires after the sermon, okay? Is it true that God loves us? Yes. Praise Him that God loves us in Christ, and we rejoice in that, and rightly so. Yet, Christian, we don't stay there because the Bible doesn't let us stay there. That's ultimately not our chief motivation for Christian living. Why? Because of what we see in heaven and what we see taught throughout the New Testament, and that is we are called to get our focus off of ourselves and instead on the one who is worthy of our full devotion, and that's the Lord Jesus Christ. We could say it this way. Our affections are not to terminate in thinking about how precious we are to God, but how majestic and glorious he is. That is why the better question to ask when counseling ourselves is who am I living for? 
So to close, and I really do mean that, I just want to give you three statements from this passage that demonstrate why Jesus is worthy of our full devotion. Because, friend, at the end of the day, it all boils down to this. Do I count myself as worthy of full devotion and live for me? Or do I count Christ as worthy of my full devotion and live for him? Revelation points to the latter. Why? Because, number one, Jesus rules over history. I want you to notice this, these two chapters are making a profound truth that cannot be overemphasized. You know what that truth is? It's this. Notice, apart from the person and work of Jesus Christ, history has no purpose. This is the whole point of Jesus being the only one worthy to take the scroll. You, you will not find a more Christ-exalting passage than this. A governor might think he rules over a state. A president might think he rules over a nation. But it is Christ and Christ alone who rules over them all and all of history. You want to be on the wrong side of history? Live for yourself. Your wants, your wishes, your desires. You want to be on the right side of history? Live for Christ. Second, I want you to notice that Jesus knows all things. Did you see there in verse 6? how Jesus is described as having seven eyes. The fact that these seven eyes are identified with God's seven spirits shows that Jesus' knowledge extends throughout all the earth. This is a, a vivid way to say that Jesus sees and knows all things, including every detail of your life. Do you know all things? Do you know half the stuff? then why live for yourself when you can live for the one who does know all things? Indeed, why would you continue to lean on your own understanding instead of submitting to God's word? And then lastly, Jesus redeems sinners. You know what's so sad about that Ed Sheeran song, Visiting Hours? It isn't the fact that he mourns the loss of his friend. You know what's the most sad? What's the most sad is that what Ed really wants is not the God of heaven, but simply his friend. Valley Center Community Church, what makes heaven great is not the residence, but the ruler. And you'll never come to find the ruler worthy of our devotion until we have an accurate view of our sin. Friend, your sin, that besetting sin, my besetting sins, they deserve judgment. Indeed, God owes us judgment for our sin. Yet that's not what God gives us in Christ. Amen? The judgment we deserve has been paid by Christ on the cross. This is why Jesus was slain, so he could redeem sinful people like you and me, people undeserving of his love and grace. What more could Jesus possibly do to prove he is worthy of your whole life? Those aspiring stewardesses gave up so much, including being married, for what? A job. All because they thought the job was worthy of it. Friend, we have something far greater than a job that is worthy of our full devotion, and that is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, the one who rules over all history, 
the only one who is worthy to take the scroll and to enact all of God's purposes. This one who died, Christian, to save you. What more could he do to prove to you that he's worthy of your full devotion? May we live lives each and every moment that reflect our full devotion to Christ. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for your kindness to us and for these texts. Lord, I pray that you would help us to find our delight and satisfaction not in the things of this world, but in our great God and Savior who is worthy of our lives. In Christ's name I pray.